This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Water, earth, fire, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then everything changed when the fire nation attacked. Leave the Avatar
cool style. My friend Joshua Kosler is a Bagua practitioner. Um, he is wonderfully proficient in it. He has uh, taught me a few very small things, um, and it's it's a delightful, delightful style. Um, the entire Avatar show is just one long child soldiers trope in action, and I don't love that. I have a lot of feelings about the child soldier trope when it's used in media, but we're not going to get into that here. We're just going to keep on moving on. Aang lets himself get captured so that Zuko and the Fire Nation will leave the waterbenders alone because the fight is starting to spread because Zuko's throwing around literal gouts of fire, something that Aang can defend himself against, but there's splashback against the people around him. But he escapes his captivity pretty easily, and he even comments on how, I bet none of you have ever fought an airbender before. Aang's very clever in how he uses his power and in just his observational skills, but then again, he is an airbending master, so he's very, very good at going with the flow. Um, and in his escape, Aang can fly, because that's one of the things that airbenders can do. Not on his own, he needs a glider to do that, as all but two airbenders in history need to do. But as he's starting to fly away, Zuko jumps off of a 30-foot platform to try and grab Aang as he's flying. And it's phenomenally badass that he does this, because that fall is going to hurt, no matter how proficient in falling in martial arts uh, you are. Later in the episode, um, Zuko and Iroh do a teamwork fireball where they, like, both do the same martial movement and punch outwards, and their fireballs combine into one really big one, and it's super duper cool. There were no cool animals in episode 2. Moving on in episode 3, in this episode, Aang and the gang are heading to the air temple where Aang grew up. Only heartbreak awaits when they get here. The temple is in the Patola mountain range, uh, which is a cool thing to know. It's not something that I ever paid attention to on previous watches. Aang is absolutely convinced that the only way to get to an air temple is on a flying bison. So he's convinced, despite what everyone else believes, that the air nomads are still there and that they've just been in hiding for the past 100 years. He is wrong. But we get a pretty good look into air nomad culture in here, and this is really one of our only insights into airbending culture, and any subsequent ones that we do all come through the gaze of this 12-year-old boy. But we learn about an airbending game called Airball that's played on tall poles with airbending as you manipulate a ball and trying to get it through a kind of Quidditch-esque, a kind of Quidditch-esque goal on the other end. There are plenty, there's plenty of evidence of firebenders in the temple, but Sokka and Katara do their best to hide it from Aang. There are very old uniforms and skeletons. Aang's teacher, uh, the one who primarily taught him airbending, was a man named Monk Gyatso. He is named after the 14th Dalai Lama, whose name is Tenzin Gyatso. This is interesting to note because Aang's son in Legend of Korra is named Tenzin. The Air Temple has a room full of statues of all the past avatars, and the room is almost full of statues. It's massive, going back thousands of years, and the last avatar who has a statue is Avatar Roku, the firebender avatar before Aang. We're gonna get a lot more Avatar Roku throughout these, this series, and he is a pretty cool character if a bit of a wimp. Fire Nation soldiers, generals, and commanders all wear top knots as a sign of status. There's a lot of Japanese culture in the Fire Nation. They also have honor duels that are called Agni Kai, which literally translates as Duel of Fire. Zuko fights one against another Fire Nation soldier, Commander Zhao, in this episode. We're also going to get a lot of Commander Zhao in this season. He's the worst. Zuko manages to win against a firebending master by remembering a lesson that his uncle was trying to teach him in the beginning of the episode in a delightful Chekhov's gun. 
Near the end of the episode, Aang finds Monk Gyatso's uh, skeleton surrounded by about a dozen firebenders, and this is massively impressive based on meta-knowledge of the later series, or really just later in this season, where we learn about Sozin's Comet and the huge power boost that it gives to firebenders. And despite these firebenders, about a dozen of them being basically roided out on superpower juice, Monk Gyatso still manages to beat like 12 of them, which is just insane. It's ridiculous. Ongo Iroh is one of my favorite characters for so, so, so many reasons. One, his his wisdom, his cool-headed nature, the, like, dope one-liners he drops all the time, but also the way that he incorporates other cultural aspects into his fighting style. And we notice this a lot in Avatar, is that the people who are strongest tend to incorporate other element styles into their own fighting. Katara does this in Season 3. But after the duel with Zuko, when Zhao loses, he tries to strike back at Zuko in anger, and Uncle Iroh uses a move from the uh, style Qigong against him, uh, which is a variation of... It's similar enough to Tai Chi, um, and it would definitely have a lot of influence in waterbending, and Iroh uses a waterbending move to stop him with one hand, and it's really, really cool. Um, cool animals in episode 3 are flying lemurs, black and white with big ears, and they can like legitimately fly, not just glide. Episode 4, Aang and the gang go to Kyoshi Island to ride the elephant koi and wind up learning more about Aang's past life. The main point of this episode is that Sokka starts to get over his pretty blatant sexism. Kyoshi Island has a troop of all-female identifying warriors who base their aesthetic off of Avatar Kyoshi, whose primary aesthetic is based off of uh, Kabuki Theater. Sokka is a brilliant fighter when he pulls his head out of his ass. He learns fast and is phenomenally adaptable. He can pick up new fighting styles in a span of hours, but again, he has to pull his head out of his ass. The Fire Nation shows up with the Rough Rhinos, a pun on Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, and burns the village to the ground. They're willing to destroy whatever they need to to get Aang. But as per usual, Aang and the gang manage to get away from the Fire Nation and save the village in doing so. We get three new cool animals in episode four, the Elephant Koi, which are just gigantic koi. There are no elephant um, features with them. A giant eel called the Unagi that can shoot out giant jets of water. Aang uses it to literally start rain over the village to save it from being burned down. And these kind of Tricera rhinos that the rough rhinos ride around on, they are basically rhinoceros with lizard-oriented legs that have um, three horns on them. Episode 5. This one's kind of short. We're going through some of these a lot quicker. The gang goes to the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu, and Aang runs into a very old friend with a strange way of looking at the world. Aang's friend, Bumi, one of the only people alive who's ever actually fought against an airbender, literally over a century old and is still phenomenally ripped. And he teaches Aang to, you know, look at the world in a different way than he is used to, to help him grow as a person. And we get a kind of horned gorilla rabbit in this. It's a very weird hybrid thing. We don't get a specific name for this creature, except for this one's name is Flopsy. But the type of creature that it is is not called a Flopsy. Episode 6. Aang and the gang find themselves walking through the Earth Kingdom when they come across a village where the locals are afraid to earthbend because the Fire Nation is capturing all earthbenders and keeping them captured on one of their steamships. The Fire Nation is also exploiting the village for all of their money with repeated quote-unquote taxes. The town has a coal mine, which the Fire Nation exploits. A lot of this episode focuses on the relationship between a young earthbending boy, Haru, and earthbending itself. Because earthbending is forbidden, so he feels like his culture is 
taboo, and he has to practice his earthbending in secret to try and maintain some connection to his father who's been captured and his ancestral heritage because he doesn't want to lose that, but if he practices it in public, the Fire Nation will take him away because the earthbenders are the ones most likely to be able to resist against the Fire Nation, and on dry land, they are surrounded by a bounty of the stuff that they bend. And the Fire Nation has a distinct interest in crushing dissent and in destroying all cultures that aren't there. The Fire Nation's modus operandi is heavily rooted in nationalism and in creating a homogenous empire where everything is Fire Nation culture. Haru does eventually get captured by the Fire Nation in this episode because an old man whose life Haru saved narks on him. The captain of the prison ship refers to earthbending as a brutish savagery. This is one of the first examples in the show of outright racism that were shown from the Fire Nation. Also, by the end of the episode, Zuko winds up with the necklace that Katara wears, which we later learn is a betrothal necklace that used to belong to her grandmother, but we'll learn that in near the season finale. No cool animals in episode 6. In episode 7, Aang and the gang come upon a forest that the Fire Nation has burned down and a village in trouble as the spirit of the forest, Heibai, is stealing people. Aang gets trapped in the spirit world, but through the help of Roku's animal guide, a dragon, he learned about the existence of Sozin's comet, though he doesn't know its name yet, uh, and he learns that he can speak to Roku's spirit on the day of the winter solstice. Um, he just has to get deep into Fire Nation territory to do it. You get two cool animals in Episode 7, Literal Dragons, which are modeled after the more serpentine dragons of Chinese myths, and Ostrich Horses. We see them because Uncle Iroh gets captured by Earth Kingdom soldiers at one point and has a super cool fight with chains in his underwear um, against these Earth Kingdom guards. Episode 8, Aang and, the gang are, Aang and the gang are heading to the Fire Nation to talk to Roku's spirit in the Fire Sage's temple. There they meet a lone Fire Sage who wants to help Aang contact Roku, because that was the point of the Fire Sages and their temples, where there were these very spiritual places that had avatar rooms in them, like the one in the Air Temple, and their job was to help and serve the avatar, but a hundred years of no avatar made them a very political force that works directly for the Fire Nation. Roku tells Aang about Sozin's Comet, and how it vastly increased the power of firebenders, and Sozin and his armies used it to wipe out the airbenders. The comet is coming back at summer's end, so Aang has about six months to master three other elements. Damn. No cool animals in episode eight. Episode nine. Aang and the gang run into some pirates who've stolen a very valuable waterbending scroll. Meanwhile, Aang is freaking out with his new deadline. And that's completely understandable because Aang had been going around sort of goofing off, exploring the world, riding elephant koi, just sort of having fun because he didn't know that there was a looming deadline of the Fire Nation is going to try and destroy the world with this super powerful comet. And six months to master three other elements is a very tight deadline. Zuko and Uncle Iroh team up with the pirates at one point to try and capture Aang because the pirates want the waterbending scroll back that Katara stole from them and Zuko wants the Avatar. And there is a line near the end of the episode where Uncle Iroh gets in between Zuko and the pirate captain and says to them, are you two so dead set on fighting these ridiculous battles that you have no time to see that your boat is sailing off? And Zuko says to him, Uncle, we have no time for your proverbs. It's not a proverb. The boat is literally being stolen. And I just think that's hilarious. And it has nothing to do with 
with genocide, but I just wanted to highlight that wonderful moment. We have one cool new animal in episode 9, an iguana parrot. It's exactly what it sounds like. Episode 10, this one is a doozy. There's a lot going on in here. Aang and the gang run into a boy named Jet and his freedom fighters living in the woods and fighting against Fire Nation occupations, but everything takes a turn for the dark when Jet attempts to destroy a nearby village just to stop the Fire Nation from having it. Jet fights with two uh, hook swords, which is a very cool and very difficult weapon to fight with, but there are some really interesting implications for what you can do with it because you can literally hook the two swords together together and greatly increase your range, although then it becomes kind of a flexible weapon which makes it much more difficult to fight with. Jet has a violent hate for anyone from the Fire Nation, including a harmless old Fire Nation man who's just walking through the woods. Jet paints everyone from the Fire Nation with the same brush and feels that they all need to be killed. The Fire Nation took his home, took his family and the family of all of his friends with him, and Jet is unwilling to see past that and see that the Fire Nation is full of just people just like him and all of his friends and not all of them are necessarily soldiers or evil and he just wants to hurt them and one of the ways that he's going to do that is by destroying the nearby village that they have captured by blowing up a dam that he uses Aang and Katara to fill the reservoir of so that he can flood the entire village conveniently earlier in the episode Jet and his team capture barrels of blasting jelly they intend to use to blow up the dam Sokka is able to save the village by warning them of Jet's plan and Katara and Aang learn a hard lesson that not everyone fights for the right reason. There are no cool there are no cool animals in episode 10. In episode 11, Aang and the gang have to help two groups of refugees cross the Great Divide before reaching the Earth Kingdom capital of Ba Sing Se. It's a weird, happy old McCoy story that Aang solves through lying. The two um, groups of refugees, the Zhang and the Ganjin, their feud is over a hundred years old. And Aang is able to resolve their differences by literally lying to them and saying that he's the Avatar, which is not a lie, and that he knew uh, Wei Jin and Jin Wei, the two figures from the story that they're both telling, which is a lie, and convincing them that the feud that they thought was real for all this time was actually just a child's game that they were playing. And it's... I'm not 100% sure how I feel about that ethically, but I guess it got the job done. We have one cool animal in episode 11, and that is the canyon crawlers, which are these giant six-legged bug kind of things that live down in the canyon and are um, attracted to food. Episode 12. Aang's memories are hitting him pretty hard as he finally tells the gang the story of how he ran away from his responsibilities and wound up in the ice. Aang was told that he was the Avatar four years early because of the coming war. He was supposed to be told when he turned 16, but he was told when he was 12. We also learn about Zuko's past and why he's so dead set on finding the Avatar. So we know that even a hundred years ago, before the war started, there was a brewing war on the horizon. The airbenders knew that something was coming and that they would need an avatar, fully realized with all of his powers to do something about it, to maintain balance. So they told Aang early. 
and Aang learns that he's going to be sent away from Monk Yatso and everything that he knows and loves to be sent to another air temple to finish the last little bits of his airbending training. And he doesn't want this. So he and Appa run away into a storm and they wind up under the water where Aang goes into the Avatar state and he builds this giant bubble of air which ices over and then traps him and Appa in there for a hundred years. We learn that Zuko is so dead set on finding the Avatar because he, as a young Fire Nation prince, wanted to get involved in the runnings of the war. And so he got himself into his father's war council chambers and sat in on a meeting. And when he learned that a battalion of fresh recruits was going to be used as basically cannon fodder against the earthbenders, he speaks out against it. And he speaks out against the general who had made the plan, but in speaking up in the Fire Lord's war chamber, it was the Fire Lord himself whom he had insulted. So he winds up having to fight an honor duel against his dad. And when he refuses to do that because he doesn't want to fight his dad and he apologizes profusely for doing this, his dad burns his face and sends him off to capture the Avatar. No cool animals in episode 12. Episode 13. Katara and Sokka get sick and Aang has to go looking for some frozen frogs to cure them. In his search, he gets captured by the Fire Nation because they have these really phenomenally talented archers who can like all split like an arrow with an arrow with an arrow with an arrow. It's very, very cool. And he gets rescued by Zuko, masquerading as the Blue Spirit. He wears a white and blue face mask and fights with two Chinese broadswords and does not use any firebending so as not to give himself away. And Zuko is very, very proficient with those broadswords. We get our first depictions of Fire Nation propaganda in this episode. When Zhao gives a speech to his soldiers, calling them the sons and daughters of fire, the superior element. I guess congratulations are in order for Commander Zhao, who is now Admiral Zhao. We have one cool animal in episode 13, and I'm not even really sure it counts, the wood frogs, that when they freeze, they secrete this sort of curative um, into the ice around them. They're technically just regular frogs. Maybe they're made out of wood. I don't know, but um, I'm including them anyway. Episode 14. Aang and the gang go to a village with a fortune teller who people have absolute faith in, and Sokka yells a lot about science. Aang has to stop a volcano by tricking people into realizing that it's going to blow up and that their village is in danger. We have one cool animal in this episode, and that is a platypus bear. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a, like, grizzly bear-sized creature that has the tail and webbed feet and bill of a platypus, but is bear-sized. Episode 15, Aang and the gang run into Bato, a water tribe warrior and a friend of their dad, friend of Sokka and Katara's dad, I should say, at a monastery that makes perfume. Meanwhile, Zuko and Iroh hire a bounty hunter with a shearshu to track Katara. A shearshu is our cool animal for the episode. It's a giant star-nosed mole that has a tongue with paralyzing barbs on it. The gang almost breaks up when Aang hides information from Sokka and Katara about their dad. Aang has severe abandonment issues, as is very clear by the events of episode 12 and these events here because Aang is so terrified of people leaving him and of losing the things that are familiar and that give him comfort 
so much so that he hides information from Kata Kataka and Sara. Ugh, that's not how that works. From Sokka and Katara about the location of their dad, who they haven't seen for years because he's been all fighting a war, which not cool, Aang. In episode 16, Aang and the gang come across a man known as Zhang Zhang the Deserter. He was the first man to ever desert the Fire Nation army and live. And, conveniently enough, he's a firebending master. Aang jumps ahead to learn firebending and things go poorly. He uh, doesn't take proper time and patience. He does not respect the fire enough as a dangerous force, and he winds up burning Katara. But in this episode, Katara learns that waterbenders also have uh, an ability to heal, and it's something that she discovers instinctively when she puts her hand burned hands in a river and heals herself. The gang also goes to a Fire Nation cultural festival, and they see more Fire Nation propaganda in the form of a children's puppet show. Uh, puppet theater is very often used as satire to poke fun at things, um, and in a very Punch and Judy-esque show, we see the Fire Lord still being shown as a mighty and powerful force. No cool animals in episode 16. Episode 17, Aang and the gang go to the Northern Air Temple and find that it's not empty. A group of refugees have moved in and they've changed the place pretty drastically. Aang feels betrayed and he feels like his culture is being destroyed, but he soon learns that he has more kinship with these people and their gliders than he thought. This episode is very, very cool. Any time we spend in the air temples is just chef's kiss good because it's the only insight we get into air nation culture we get insights into water tribe cultures through the southern water tribes through the foggy swamp waterbenders that we'll see in season two through the northern water tribes a lot of insight into the earth kingdom because that is where the majority of the show takes place and season three is a huge look into fire nation culture there are no air nomads except for ang so the only time that we really get insights into their culture is when ang goes to an air temple and the northern air temple is massive and beautiful and as the gang approach it having heard about this group of air walkers that live there and fly about like birds katara and Sokka are and they say, hey, it looks like the old man was right. There are other airbenders. And Aang immediately knows those are not airbenders. Just by looking at the way that their gliders fly about, he knows that they are not airbending. They're not flying, they're just gliding. And that's really cool that he can tell that just at a glance. He looks at them and you see his face fall as he realizes, no, they're just regular gliding. Which is still a very cool thing, but very disheartening for Aang, I'm sure. We meet our first disabled character in the show. His name's Teo. Teo's in a wheelchair that his father designed. His father also designed the airships that the Fire Nation use uh, in their war that we see in later episodes because he's designing those airships here in this episode. He had to for the safety of his people, but it's still a terrible thing. About a year after they moved in, the Fire Nation discovered them and forced Teo's dad to start building things for them or uh, they would destroy him. We see a lot of the industrialization that the Fire Nation uses here in the Air Nation Temple as Teo's dad 
creates steam power and uses natural gas for fuel and pumps hot air out to give updrafts for the gliders. But what this means is that there's a lot of machinery and pipes running through the Air Nomad Temple, destroying sacred murals um, and really just damaging cultural relics of the Air Nomads. And this is very hurtful and disheartening for Aang, who sees his ancestral home and culture and this sacred temple in his eyes destroyed. But this is unfortunately how progress works. Um, and pragmatism kind of took a, a front seat to cultural concerns when these refugees moved in because no one was using it. It was a ruin. The Air Nomads were gone, as sad as it was, and they had to put the concerns of their own survival and well-being ahead of these people who weren't here anymore. And it's not a justification per se, because that doesn't. we shouldn't just go around destroying ancient cultures just because we need the land that these things are on, but it is an explanation, I guess, for why Teo and his dad and their people did what they did. We get another cool animal in this episode. They're tiny, adorable, fuzzy hermit crabs. We can assume that there were probably some of them in the Eastern Air Temple where we were e earlier in the season, but we didn't see any there. We're nearing the end of our season now. Um, season one probably has the least overall for our consideration because as with all series, it kind of has to start off light because it is a children's show and then it gets heavier as time goes on. But episode 18, things all start to come to a head. Aang and the gang make it to the Northern Water Tribe to begin Aang's waterbending training. Aang's waterbending training had begun earlier because Katara taught him the few things that she was able to discover for herself, but Aang very quickly learns all of the waterbending that Katara has to teach him, and it, it gets very frustrating for her at one point as Aang picks up very, very quickly the things that she had to struggle and scrape to discover for herself. But Aang is a phenomenally talented young bender um, who'd already mastered airbending, and to a certain extent, there's a lot of carryover and crossover between air and waterbending. There's a lot of flowing, there's a lot of constant circular motion. Aang's able to pick it up very quickly. He's got a lot of raw talent. For everything that's not, well, he struggles with both earth and firebending, but for very different reasons. In episode 18, Admiral Zhao also plans his invasion of the Northern Water Tribe. The Northern Water Tribe city is basically Venice made of ice. It's all canals and long straight roads and they can constantly shape and reshape their city at will because it's entirely made of ice, and there are a lot of waterbenders in the northern tribe. Whatever hardships befell the southern tribe, hardships that we will talk about when we get to season three, they have not befallen the northern water tribe. Sokka also falls in love with Princess Yue of the northern water tribe who was blessed by the spirit of the moon because as a baby she wasn't breathing and then prayers were made to the moon and they took her to the spirit oasis and put her in the water and her hair turned white and she started crying and this will be a Chekhov's gun near the end of the season but more on that later. The northern water tribe has some seriously outdated ideas of who can and can't fight and so Katara is forbidden to learn combat waterbending. This will not end well for Master Mr. Paku, Aang's waterbending teacher. Katara is allowed to go learn healing, and that's a good and important thing, and she, you know, uses it a lot throughout the rest of the show, but Katara wants to fight. 
She sees the injustice that's going on in the world and she doesn't want to just sit idly by and do nothing about it. She wants to fight. But in Northern Water Tribe culture, women don't fight and Paku refuses to teach Katara. And this breaks pretty bad for Aang when Aang starts teaching Katara some of the things that Paku was teaching him. And Paku discovers this and then bans Aang from his class. We'll get to the end results of that in a little bit. But Zhao hires the pirates, the same pirates from the waterbending scroll incident, to kill Zuko by blowing up his ship. So we spend a little bit of time thinking that Zuko might be dead. In the ensuing confrontation between Master Paku and the leader of the Northern Tribe, as Katara and Aang try and get Paku to take Aang back as his student, Katara picks a fight with Master Paku because she refuses to bow to his outdated, sexist, completely ridiculous mindset. And in the ensuing fight, Katara almost wrecks his entire shop. This is one of the best choreographed fights in the entire series. Katara is by no means a waterbending master, and Master Paku is probably the most powerful waterbender on the planet. One of them. Top three easily. But Katara, just like, the things that she does, that she sort of intuits, right? Because again, Katara has had no formal waterbending training at this point. Aang's literally teaching her for five minutes before Paku shows up and destroys their lesson. So Katara intuits all of these beautiful and amazing ways to fight in this snowy uh, wonderland full of water and does phenomenally well. She never lands a clean hit on Master Paku because again, he is a waterbending master, but like she gets far closer than he probably should have ever let her get. There are no cool animals in episode 18. Um, I stand Katara forever, forever and ever and ever, if only because of this fight. Episode 19, the penultimate episode. Admiral Zhao and Fire Nation arrive at the North Pole for a siege. Zhao's plan is to find the corporeal form of the spirit of the moon and kill it. Little backstory. There, we already know that there's a spirit world here, right? We, we met Heibai, the spirit of a particular forest earlier. There are spirit forms of a lot of things in the spirit world, including some of the spirits of the dead. The spirit of the moon and ocean gave up their immortality to take corporeal form in our world hundreds of years ago, but the exact location of their corporeal forms was lost to history. However, that information was apparently inside an Earth Kingdom library that Admiral Zhao found when part of another Fire Nation uh, general's coterie. I don't remember that other general's name, and it's not super important because it's the only time he's ever mentioned, but Zhao finds the location of their corporeal forms, and he intends to invade the northern water tribe, find the spirit of the moon, and kill the moon. And in doing so, he will strip all waterbenders of their power forever. And doing this would be a clear example of cultural genocide. Now, cultural genocide should be pretty easy to define for anyone who remembers the definition of genocide. It's just that, but the destruction of uh, a people's culture instead of the physical body of people. There is no formal documentation outlawing cultural genocide in the real world. The closest thing we have is the UN's Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People that came out in 2008 that uh, says that people have a right to be protected against forcible assimilation, but that's the closest we get to 
a protection of cultural genocide in the real world. However, this would be a classic example of cultural genocide, because while not everyone in the water tribes bends water, the ability to bend the elements has a huge impact on their culture, and their connection to the spirits of the moon and ocean define and influence who they are as a people overall. So destroying the moon would uh, destroy a vital element of water tribe culture. But Zhao doesn't care about that. He just wishes to be known as the man who destroyed the last of the water tribe civilization. Because if he does that, if he destroys the moon, then that means that there are no waterbenders left. And there are basically no airbenders left except for this one, which means that it would just be the Fire Nation and Earthbenders left. And the Fire Nation has a plan for that, or will develop one in Season 3. We get one cool animal in episode 19, sea turtle seals. They are basically like sea lions or seals that have sea turtle shells on them and like sea turtle oriented flippers. We learn about them uh, when we find out, hey, Zuko's not dead, and he's going to stealth infiltrate the Northern Water Tribe capital to try and capture the Avatar. Episode 20, the last one. Aang has traveled into the spirit world to try and find the moon and ocean spirits, to try and find their corporeal forms so that he can protect them from Admiral Zhao. Meanwhile, Zuko captures Aang, his body as Aang's spirit is in the spirit world, and he monologues about his childhood, right? He talks about his relationship with his dad and his relationship with his sister. Um, he talks about how his dad says his sister was born lucky, whereas Zuko is just lucky to be born, because Zuko's sister sister, uh, Azula, is a firebending prodigy. She is one of the most talented firebenders in the world, and she's the only firebender who has blue flames um, that we ever see in any Avatar series. Aang in the spirit world has to find Ko, the face stealer, who does exactly what you think he does, and looks like a giant millipede, which kind of creepy. No offense to anyone who super likes Ko for whatever reason. Because Ko is one of the only spirits who's old enough to have been around when the moon and ocean spirits gave up their corporeal form. He'll know where they are, and he tells Aang about it, um, and Aang is, manages to avoid having his face stolen by just not having any facial expression on his face, because if he has any facial expression at all, he is told by Roku, Ko will steal his face. And Aang learns that um, the moon and ocean spirits, Tui and La, push and pull Yin and Yang, circle each other in an eternal dance. And Aang suddenly realized that that's the koi fish that are in the spirit oasis where he was sitting when he entered the spirit world. Aang doesn't know that Zuko took his body. He has no physical sensation when he's in the spirit world. He also can't bend when he's in the spirit world in spirit form. So, But regardless, Aang learns that it's the koi fish that he was literally sitting in front of when he entered the spirit world. Um, we learn in this episode that waterbenders literally get stronger with the waxing of the moon, and in a full moon, they are at their strongest. And that's some dope as fuck world building. Um, and it, it makes the destruction of the moon spirit uh, much more real when it happens. And Zhao does actually kill the moon spirit at one time. And Iroh goes full on Dragon of the West on him at this point because. Iroh is a huge believer in the balance of all four elements and how it's absolutely necessary that there be all of them in the world. But destroying the moon would throw the world wildly out of balance. So he goes off on Zhao. However, it's, it's Zuko who winds up having a pretty cool climactic battle with him later. But we are able to restore the moon spirit to life through a wonderful deus ex... Not a deus ex machina. It's a Chekhov's gun. Because remember how we learned earlier 
earlier that Yue was blessed by the spirit of the moon to give her fresh life when she was um, born not breathing. Well, Yue is able to transfer her life force into the spirit of the moon. This kills her in her corporeal form, but it turns her into the spirit of the moon, restoring it to power and giving water benders back their bending. This allows Aang to draw upon the spirit powers of the spirit of the ocean and moon to transform into a basically giant humanoid fish version of the spirit of the ocean and he's able to defeat the Fire Nation uh, Navy single-handedly. Also, he absolutely murders Admiral Zhao, although Aang in Avatar form doesn't really have all of his faculties. It's kind of like a barbarian's rage in Dungeons and Dragons, so he is not super aware of the fact that he definitely murdered a man. Um, and then that ends Season 1, which is uh, pretty cool. Next month, we're going to be talking about Book 2, Earth. Then the following month, we'll be talking about Book 3, Fire. And then once we get to April, we will be back with regular real-world genocide examples. So if talking about cartoons isn't your jelly or your jam, check back with us in April. Although if cartoons aren't your jelly or your jam, you've probably stopped listening at some point. In which case, sorry. Genostory is part of the That's Not Canon podcasting network. You can find us at thatsnotcanon.genocide.com story.com this month's shout out is black magic woman an australian first nations podcast hosted by hosted by mundarina bales who was born and raised in redfern also known as sydney australia and currently lives in queensland the black magic woman podcast is an uplifting conversational style program featuring mainly first nations people from australia and around the world sharing their stories about their journey to highlight the diversity amongst first nation peoples and the resilience of her people that sounds really cool Mandarna, and I look forward to getting a chance to listen to that when I have finally caught up with the Adventure Zone again because I'm listening it to it for the 20th time. If you like what you heard here, you can follow Genistory on social media at GenistoryPod on Twitter, Facebook.com backslash GenistoryPod, or you can send me an email at GenistoryPod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear about. If you'd like more of just me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at ProfJohnStrange or on Facebook at John Lestrange colon historian. Although, if I'm being honest, I haven't really used either of those social media accounts in a very long time. So if you really want to find me anywhere on social media, you should look for me on TikTok as at the History Wizard, where you can join the over 100,000 people who I am currently trying to teach about history and stuff. If you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games, on Amazon. They are available in paperback and ebook format. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of ratings and reviews, we don't have any new ones for Genistory this month. That's okay. It's the nature of the game. But please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so that other people can find the podcast. Thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the app Hatchful and my amazing wife for designing and then editing our logo. As always, I'm John, and this has been Genistory. We agree to do this.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 